But here's a question I want to start us off today. If you were the one who had to give an account for how the Lord was doing ministry through your life tonight, what would you say? Would you have a response for that? Would you be able to rejoice in how the Lord is moving in the people you're pouring yourself into and how they are growing and that is doubling your joy in the Lord? Or would you, have you defaulted in just my Christianity's for me? Because we all know, and the Bible makes this clear, every Christian is a missionary. Every one of us is a missionary. So we shouldn't default into our Christianity is just for us. You see, we can think we have been saved for our sake as if we are the point of our own salvation. And if we think that way and we hold those beliefs, the gospel is not going to move through us, friends. To other people, he wants to save and he wants to sanctify. And we become more concerned with the benefits of the gospel for our own lives rather than how can we glorify Jesus. We don't want to just become believers for the benefits. We want to become believers because Jesus loves us and he set us on mission for the glory of his name. So we don't believe just for the benefits. It's we live on mission. I, I, I had to struggle with this. In 2013, I, I was interviewed for a summer camp uh, I got the privilege to work at. And the last question the interviewer asked me is one that I always remember. And the question went like this, and I thought it was a trick question, but it was just revealing what I valued in my heart. The question was, if after you die, do you want to go to heaven if Jesus is not there? If after you die, Jesus is not in heaven, would you still want to go to heaven? And I had to stop and think. I said, no. Like, I love Jesus. I want to be wherever he is. And if he's not there, it's not worth going. Because I want to be with him. Is that your heart's cry? Or is it just, hey, I'm believing just because I just want to go to heaven? Or it's like, no, I believe because I love Jesus. David Platt in his book, Radical, he says it like this. The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I may make him, his ways, his salvation, his glory, and his greatness known among all nations. Now, God is the object of our faith, and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. I mean, I... I've had to wrestle with this. I'm not speaking from perfection. I'm speaking from as a person who wants to be faithful to the Lord. I want to make disciples with my life. But I know this, making disciples is difficult because it requires time and commitment. I know even before I became a campus pastor, I met with young men often so they may grow in their relationship with the Lord. And one of the disheartening things I've had to walk through is meeting with men for an extended amount of time and find out now they're not walking with the Lord. They've chosen ways that are going to destroy them if they continue in those ways. but I still have hope that the Lord can get their hearts. For some of us, it's not time or commitment. For some of us, we're just afraid to make disciples because we don't want to be made a fool of. We fear them asking us a question 
that we don't know. And that's one where you can model humility before the people you are discipling. But like, hey, I don't know, I'll get back to you. For some of us, we have no idea and we just need some training. Well, I got a great opportunity for you with being at High Street because they are teaching people how to make disciples. So there's no excuse for that. And for some of us, we may have made the distinction in our minds, which is unbiblical, which is sacred secular. Like we pay Pastor Eddie to make disciples, Logan Couch, Jerry Brown, we pay them to make them. We pay Tom to make disciples. We don't have to make disciples. That is so wrong. I love you. That is so wrong. That's not what the Bible communicates to us. That we're all making disciples, whether we draw a paycheck from it or not. And we're all going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for our lives. And my fear is some of our answers will be, I spent more time pursuing the American dream rather than pursuing your will for my life. Like God didn't bring you here just to make you comfortable. He brought you here and he saved you to make disciples. Now, I'm not saying, I just want to be very clear. I'm not saying everyone should go into vocational ministry. Some of us should. I'm not saying everybody should go into vocational ministry. I'm not saying every one of us needs to move to another country to reach an unreached or underserved people group with the gospel. Some of us certainly should. I'm saying every Christian is a missionary and should be making disciples despite the context because that's what missionaries do. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, says it like this. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Now, that may be an overstatement because I want to leave some room for growth and grace to make you grow. But if there's no growth, you're just proving you're an imposter. Because things that are alive grow. The only things that don't grow are things that are dead. If your faith isn't moving you to this, I want to invite you to take a look at your faith right now and say, is it motivating me to action? And I'm not just talking about evangelism which is surely a part of discipleship, but doesn't encompass the totality of discipleship. The passage that most comes to mind when I think about discipleship is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Look at what Paul says here. So being affectionately, affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So discipleship is an investment of your very life so that others may grow in their relationship with the Lord. How are we doing with that today, church? How are we doing with that today? And what you need to know is that if you miss this, you will leave here not carrying out the mission which God has sent you for. If you're leaving here and not going to be a part of this local body anymore, graduates, or you're gonna stay here in Springfield and not accomplish the mission which he puts you in Springfield Four, and even moreover, you're just going to miss the joy of seeing people grow in their faith and have an active role in that. I can't even explain that joy, but it's joy inexpressible to see people grow in their faith and walk faithfully with the Lord, and it changes their lives forever, and their children are blessed by it. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.1, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for. This is the Philippians. He spent time with them. My joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
Do you see his heart in that? I poured my life into these people. They are my joy and crown. Stand firm, especially in the Philippians context, because there's persecution afoot. You feel this way about someone you've given your life over to. And I pray that we all would know that same joy and wouldn't miss out. So today, we're going to be reminded of what God wants us to do despite where we're at, despite if we're leaving here or staying in Springfield. And we're going to be reminded of that from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. And to give you some context of where we're at, this is the 40 days in between Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension. So he... Uh, resurrects from the dead to prove he has power over sin and the grave, and then he appears to his disciples to uh, um, substantiate his claims, who he is, who he says he is, and to teach them, this is what I want you to do. And this is what I want all people to do throughout all times who call me Lord and Savior. Like the gospel has to go. The gospel has to go. It's not for just those who are in vocational ministry. And the heart behind this message for those of us who are departing graduates is to be reminded that God, where God is sending us, he wants us to make disciples there. And for those who are staying, we need to be reminded we need to be on mission together. We need to be on mission together. There are people here who do not know the goodness of God, and we need to tell them. Graduating seniors who are pursuing higher education, God is not sending you there primarily to make good grades, even though you should make good grades. I'm not giving you an excuse. No out on that one. That's a part of discipleship. He is sending you there to make disciples. Graduating college seniors who are going into the workforce, God is not sending you there to primarily to make a living. He's sending you there to make disciples. Those of us who are staying in Springfield and surrounding cities, God did not bring you here to make you comfortable God has placed you here to make disciples. The Bible makes that clear on every page. The education, the job, the kids, the grandkids, the friends, which are all great things, and those may have been the vehicle to which, uh, why you came here, but the reason he brought you here is because he wanted you to make disciples. You can make disciples of those people, but if the, those things are the end within themselves, you miss it. Oh, God just had us move here because the grandkids. It's like, no, God had you, wanted you to disciple those grandkids. Or God sent me here just to get a degree. It's like, no, he wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be faithful there. If we get this right, the nations will sing for joy, and we will all experience the joy of having a role in someone's growth. And if we miss it, we show the nations and the people in Springfield that we serve a God who's not worth living for. Just not worth living for, which is so false. This morning, we're going to look at one truth, one command, and one promise straight from the mouth of Jesus. The truth will give weight to the command, but the promise will give confidence as you carry out the man. And I want you to leave here with this. If you're leaving, if you're departing, God is sending you there to make disciples. God is sending you there because he really loves the people there. Therefore, he puts his people in places to tell of his goodness. And if you're staying here, God brought you here to make disciples. The vehicle... Maybe something different, but primarily he brought you here to make disciples. Would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, I thank you for this text, and I thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Would you help me say all that you want me to say? And would you stop me from saying things that you don't want me to say? And would you be glorified with every word? God, not to us be the glory, but to you. So would you help us? Will we see this clearly? 
We ask all these things for glory in your name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jumping into Matthew 28, 18. What is this truth? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why does Jesus start his interaction with the disciples after the resurrection like this? Because just a chapter ago, it didn't look like Jesus had all authority. It didn't look like that. Matthew 27 is the crucifixion and resurrection. Was Jesus hanging on a Roman's cross as a sinner and he died? It didn't look like he had any authority. It looked like Rome did. So he's reminding them of this because looks can be deceiving. He wanted to prove to them and deal with not God's most pressing enemy at that time, which is Rome. He wanted to deal with God's most pressing enemy. I'm sorry, the people of God's most pressing enemy of all time, which is death. So he does have all authority. Despite him hanging on the Roman's cross, that was God's plan. He was crushed for our iniquities. That was not outside of his authority. He's saying, I have all authority. The Roman Empire wouldn't last, but the sting of death would unless Jesus died and resurrected. And the resurrection proves Jesus has all authority even over death. This is good news for us who plan on dying one day. You plan on dying one day? This is great news. Because if you turn away from your sin in yourself and turn towards Jesus in faith and trust in him alone as your Lord and Savior, you'll be resurrected with him. We're talking about new life. This gives us hope despite death. Death is defeated because Christ is alive. And that's good news, friends. The best news ever, literally. That's why we gather here to remind us of those things and we should live in light of those things. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He lets us know where he has his authority extends to because he can have all authority in one place and not another. But he's not giving us that out. He says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. He's communicating that he's the highest authority in the universe over the universe. Or the truth is, Jesus has universal authority. Just universal authority. He's in control of everything. We have to wrestle with that in our lives because Where does Jesus not have the utmost authority in our lives? Where do we not bow down to Jesus? Does Jesus' authority end where your bank account begins? Does it end where your bank account begins? Is it your money to spend or God's money to steward? There's a way Jesus has authority. It's like we bow down with our bank account, with our children, with our education. He has all authority. We want to submit to him. But if we bow down to another authority, it's just not going to be good for us. Here are four that we often bow down to, and I even bow down to one of them. At sometimes I need to bring it towards the Lord, and I'll tell you which one it is. And I phrase these in questions. Is comfort your highest authority? Do you avoid stress and demands and often find yourself bored or just leaning towards being lazy? Do the people around you feel neglected because you punt on the relationships you should cultivate? Do you go to sleep with a bunch of energy because you haven't been wrung out for Christ? And maybe that's why some of us find ourselves tied up with sin because an idle mind is the devil's playground. God didn't design you to go to sleep with so much energy. You go to sleep wrung out for the glory of God. If you go to sleep and you have a lot of energy, there's much ministry to do here. We can get you involved. Is approval your highest authority? 
So you will do anything including value compromising or self-destructive things to avoid rejection. Do you find yourself being easily used, pressured, or controlled to gain someone's favor? Do you ride the fence not to offend anyone and find yourself struggling with the fear of do they like me or not? Do the people around you feel smothered because you're just looking for approval? If you bow down to that one, this command, you're just not going to carry it out in the way God has called you, needed you, uh, called you to. Is your highest authority power? This is mine. I struggle with this. I got to repent of it. So your worst fear is humiliation, and you despise weakness. Do you often feel frustrated and angry when you aren't succeeding or winning at life? Are you overly concerned with your reputation? Overly concerned with your reputation? Do the people around you feel used to accomplish a goal instead of love because of who they are? Is that anger? Is their anger and frustration often aimed at those closest to you because they are a reflection of you? That's one I can struggle with and I got to repent of each and every day. Is control your highest authority so you will do anything you can to combat uncertainty? Do you find yourself often constantly struggling with worry and anxiety? And the people around you, do they feel condemned when they don't carry out your will? And if you can't control them, you go to emotional manipulation by trying to control them through condemnation. It's like, do you, do you bow down to one of those? Because here's the truth about discipleship and making disciples. Discipleship will be uncomfortable. It will be. You won't always be approved of as you humbly venture into some hard truths that someone should know. Your weakness will be on display to show them you need just as much repentance as they do. I said it often to the guys I pour my life into. I need Jesus just as much as you do, man. Like, I need to repent. I am not perfect. And if your faith hinges on me, not going to be good. It need to depends on Jesus. And we're going to repent together. And if you like control, here's the truth. You're not going to be in control of someone's sanctification. God will grow them. God will grow them. He's in control. Maybe not as fast as you would like, but he's going to grow them. They're truly in Christ. I love that Jesus starts here to remind them and us of his authority before he goes into what's next. Because if we don't agree with Jesus on this point, you're going to have the great commission turn into the great suggestion. You're going to have the great commission turn into the great suggestion. It's going to be something that is going to be an afterthought in your life. And really, this command is a great litmus to see if Jesus has all authority in your life. And what's the command? It starts here. Go, therefore. Leave this place. And going is difficult because we have to venture into the unknown. We like the familiar. That's all of us. We see this even in the early church. In Acts 1.8, Jesus, before his ascension, says this to his disciples. But you receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what do the disciples do? They stay in Jerusalem. They absolutely stay in Jerusalem. They're like, oh, that's fine, Jesus. We're going to stay here. Until Acts 8-1, where God in his providence brings a man to Jerusalem with a reputation for killing Christians. His name was Saul. Acts 8-1 says this. And Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Then look at this next part. God is moving them towards obedience. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They just carried out Acts 1-8 because God in his providence brought a person down there to actually drive them out. And then God's going to save that person to grow them up. 
That is so encouraging if you have a messed up past. Because Paul stood before God one day and he's like, man, actually I used you. You didn't know that, it's Saul. I had to get my disciples out of Jerusalem. Then I saved you and grew them up. God used him in his BC days. How? Well, what does verse 18 say? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what is it therefore? Therefore, because he has all authority on heaven and earth. So he can use whatever and tell whatever to go for the glory of his name and for their good. And what should we do? What are we going to do? We're going to make disciples. And what is a disciple? It's important to define what a disciple is. A disciple in Christianity is not someone who just made a decision and that's the full extent of their walk with God. A decision is important and necessary. It is very important, but that's just the beginning. The command is to go and make disciples, not go and help people make decisions. Let's go and make disciples. And if we prioritize decisions over discipleship, we just become fire insurance salesmen. We want to get people to get out of hell free card. It's like that, that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to make disciples. A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who adheres to the teachings of Jesus. It is someone who reads and hears God's words and responds in faith and prayerfully rejoices over the realities they see. Move them towards joy. Not begrudging submission, joyful submission. Because there's a God who sits on the throne who has all authority over everything and he loves us and he's for us. Move them towards joy. But who should we make disciples of? All nations. Which means Jesus wants us to make disciples of people without distinction. Culturally, what you have to understand is Matthew is written to the Jews. The Jews, um, we may be getting a silver medal or a bronze medal in racism, the Jews got a gold melon racism because they didn't like the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Like literally prayed against them. God, don't hear their prayers and damn their children to hell. They did not like them. So when Christ says go to all nations, it didn't click in their heads, but God is trying to make a point here that he has a plan for all nations and the gospel isn't for the Jews. This is a point where we can rejoice in because I'm looking around the room right now. It doesn't look like too many of you are ethnically Jewish. So somehow, by the grace of God, through the mission of God, people believe this text and the gospel got to you. People believe this text, told someone who told someone who told someone who told you. They responded in faith. All nations. We can rejoice in that. But what are the two things disciples do? And we just saw one baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing means just that literally. That they would move forward at the becoming disciples to make a public proclamation of an inward transformation brought about about the Holy Spirit. We've just seen examples of it, and we can rejoice in that. We call that believer's baptism. It shows that our allegiance is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is our highest authority. We bow to him. Baptism does not save you. It shows that you are Um, in allegiance with Christ, that you have come to love the Lord and want to make a public proclamation about it. It's so clear, baptism. Our faith is is personal, but by no means is it private. That's what baptism illustrates. Personal faith, but it's not private. We're not trying to sneak into heaven and hope no one notices us. We're trying to proclaim Jesus in hopes that he would save everyone. It is us coming into the covenant family and inviting you to hold us accountable as we hold you accountable and we grow together. That's what baptism is. It 
That is clearly communicated here, and that's what you just saw. From Matthew 28, 28, 18, thousands of years ago, we're still obeying it. Baptize them. But we're not stopping at baptizing. And it doesn't stop here. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Up until this point, Jesus has done most of the teaching. But now it is up to the disciples now to be teachers. Why is this important? Because we're all being discipled by something. We're all learning from something. Something is teaching us. And some of those things that are teaching us do not align with God's word, go inherently against God's word, or try to twist God's word. So a part of discipleship is teaching that don't follow the culture because the culture would tell you to follow your heart. That's a common, that's a terrible piece of advice. I love you. If you, if you heard that, do not, do not abide by it. If you've given that piece of advice like I have, repent, let's move forward. Follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You shouldn't follow that one. Don't follow your heart. Matthew 16, 24 says this out of Jesus' mouth. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow his heart. No, it doesn't say that. And follow me. You don't follow your heart. You follow Jesus. Young man, young woman, anyone, in the sound of my voice, you follow Jesus. Your heart will deceive you. And the fact that we need to teach is the reason why we read our Bibles. Not just so that we can know him, but so that others can know him and obey him as we teach them to. Like our Bible reading, we invite people into the joy we have because the realities we just observed. And they see those things. This command to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, it's weighty. But the promise gives us confidence in the face of it. And what's that promise? It's God's presence, that we don't go alone. It says it at the end of verse 20, it says this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a promise that we should remember as we go and make disciples. It's the promise of his presence that accompanies us. What does this mean? I think the first thing it means is you are never alone. God is not going to forsake you or leave you. Hardship, suffering, loss, or pain will cause you to doubt that. It will cause you to doubt that. And if you are truly his and say by grace through faith, he has no desire to desert you, and he's not. We don't believe so much in the security of the believer. We believe in the security of the secure. Like he has us. You're not going anywhere. He loves you. I just got done teaching through Jonah. Jonah tried to sail away. You're not sailing to the sunset. It's not a Hollywood movie. It's not how the movie ends. You're actually going to go to Nineveh because I'm long on you, and I love you. I think the second thing this clearly communicates to us is, that God works with us. Like not only do we work for him, but he goes with us. He gets off the throne and go, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He says, actually, I'm coming with you. I'm going to work with you, through you, and in you. You're not going alone. You're never alone if you're with God in his work. He loves you and he's for you. Don't doubt his promises because of your pain. Like Romans 8.28 is true because Matthew 28.18 is true. Like, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because he has all authority. He can do what he, what he pleases. So God goes with us in our discipleship and our teaching and our baptizing. You are not alone. In conclusion, Jesus has universal authority. Therefore, we should go and make disciples. We should do it with joy because he goes with us. We're never alone. 
We are never alone. There are those of you who are departing from us, and I want to let you know you're not alone. I want to give you some practical tips for those who are actually going into college and they're actually going to work. I can give you three practical tips, I mean four practical tips, that if you do these things, I think you'll be all right. The first one, choose friends who love the Lord above everything and often act upon it. Those who walk with the wise become wise. A companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 13, 20. Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for you and take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble who is in all my delight. You will be blessed if you choose friends. They will half your sorrows, double your joys, carry you into eternity. I cannot um, understate how important that is. Second piece of advice. If you desire marriage, which is awesome, marry someone who's already well married. Let me explain that. We are the bride of Christ. So the person you marry should be joyfully cultivating that relationship with Christ. And you should see it in our life and you should glorify God because of it. That's the person you want to yoke yourself to forever. Someone who loves the same God. Third one, join a Bible-believing, Bible-structured, Bible-preaching, Bible-obedient church. Place yourself under the leadership of that church. Let them discover your gifts, develop those gifts, and deploy those gifts for the glory of God. The fourth, read your Bible every day like it's going out of style. Every day. Don't go without a day without reading God's word. Don't stop at just learning God's word. Stay there until you rejoice over the realities you see and can invite people into your relationship with God because of the realities you had with God that morning. Don't, don't just check the box. Rejoice. And for us who are staying here, there's discipleship happening at every level of this church. You have plenty of opportunity. Plenty of opportunity. Get involved. Get to joy. Get to joy. Imagine a church that is everyone is making disciples. Imagine the impact we will have when the Lord is sending us because we decide to make disciples, to believe this text. Find one person this week. You can pour your life into them. Doesn't have to be something that's regimented. It could be like, man, you just want to go on a car ride with me? I got to go to the store. You want to come with me? So often what I do. And God takes ordinary moments and transforms to extraordinary moments. He does. He shows up every time. Here's the truth. Some of you are not making disciples because you're not a disciple yourself. And I want to tell you that we all once were under God's wrath, on our way, run as quickly as we can to hell until the Lord stopped us. And by the grace of God, we are who we are today. Would you come to submit your life to Christ and experience the joy of knowing him? And would you take a step forward in discipleship and see the joy of seeing other people grow in him? It's a joy that's hard to describe. That could bring tears to your, my eyes. It's how my guys have grown and how it's changing your lives forever. I love you. And God loves Springfield and the people that are in Springfield, someone should tell them, why not us? God's sending you to college campuses and to jobs tomorrow. And God wants people to know there that he is good, he's sovereign. Would you tell them? And then would you walk alongside them to see they grow and come and experience the joy that surpasses all understanding? Would you pray with me?